especially for someone like me who kind of existed in the mid-budget range, not the low, low, low budget range that one has to exist in in order to make independent films now, um, but not in the very high budget range either. There's now a place for me. And there was a period of time over the last five years where there really wasn't a place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast featuring conversations about film, television, art, and culture. I am David Chen, and today we have a special episode. This week's episode is not going to be a normal episode of Culturally Relevant. It's not even going to be like a normal bonus episode. It's going to be a feature-length commentary on a movie that's available right now on Netflix. That movie is called In the Tall Grass. It's an adaptation of a novella by Stephen King and Joe Hill. And it was directed and written for the screen by Vincenzo Natale, who is the director of films such as Cube and Splice. He's also directed episodes of TV shows such as American Gods, Westworld, and Hannibal. Now, I had a great time talking with Vincenzo about the movie. We discussed how he made some of the changes to the novella to make it onto the big screen, as well as how he executed some of the more challenging shots and sequences in the movie. I'd argue that this commentary is still possible to listen to, even if you haven't seen the movie or aren't watching the movie as you listen to it. I actually think it's still enjoyable, but your mileage may vary, just to be fair. So uh, I, I do want to clarify that uh, the the optimal way to listen to this is you've watched the movie already, and then you're listening to this commentary to go along with it. But Vincenzo is so interesting, and he is so articulate about the process of screenwriting and movie making that I actually think everyone can get something out of this commentary, regardless of whether you've seen In the Tall Grass. But that being said, you should go see that movie, In the Tall Grass, on Netflix right now. Now, in a moment, I'm going to explain how this commentary is going to work and how we're going to maintain synchronization. But before I do that, I just want to mention that Culturally Relevant is a podcast where every week I interview or speak with uh, an artist, a writer, a director, an author. Uh, and you can find more episodes of the show at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can also find us on Twitter at CRevShow. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are downloaded. If you enjoy this commentary, this episode of the podcast, do consider leaving a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also uh, just check out the rest of uh, the podcast. A lot of great conversations with really interesting and talented people. Uh, so subscribe, check it out, download some episodes, uh, tell your friends about it. Would really appreciate that. So all that said, let's get ready to do this commentary on In the Tall Grass with Vincenzo Natale. Here's how this is going to work. I am going to count down from five to zero. Right, And when I get to zero, when I hit zero, uh, I'm going to say the word pause instead of the number zero. And at that point, you're going to do a few things. You are going to pause this podcast episode, number one. Number two, you're going to queue up In the Tall Grass on Netflix and hit play on In the Tall Grass and wait until the Netflix logo appears and the new Netflix logo is red and then like the logo kind of shoots towards the screen and goes all around you before disappearing into the blackness, right? And at the moment that the Netflix logo disappears from the screen, right? So the Netflix logo pops up, it shoots past you, and then all the red is gone, all the cool colors are gone. The moment it's gone, all those colors are gone and the Netflix logo is gone from the screen and it's just black, hit pause on whatever device you're watching Netflix on. And then unpause both this podcast episode and Netflix at the same time. 
and we should be in sync for the entirety of In the Tall Grass. So let me just review that one more time. I'm going to count from five to zero. When I hit zero, I'm not going to say a number. I'm just going to say pause. At that moment, uh, you hit pause on this recording. Then go to Netflix. Wait until the Netflix logo disappears from the screen. The moment that happens, hit pause on your Netflix. Then unpause both this podcast episode and Netflix simultaneously. And you should be in sync. And you should hear Vincenzo and I talking about In the Tall Grass. So here we go. Let's, uh, let's get ready to, to start this countdown. Five. Four, three, two, one, pause. Hi, this is Vincenzo Natale. I'm talking In the Tall Grass with David Chin. Vincenzo, uh, this is a really evocative and really well done opening shot, obviously coming in overhead into the tall grass. Tell us about why you wanted to open the film this way and how you achieved the shot. Uh, well, it's like a little, you know, I've always thought of the movie as being a little bit like a symphony, uh, not to sound overly pretentious about it, but in so much as because we're in this one environment, we are dealing with one theme that is played in variation. And so the opening shot is just a little bit like an overture to the movie, to the movie itself. And, uh, I just felt that we needed a little bit of that kind of mood and a sense of something ominous established right from the beginning. Um, and the shot itself was achieved with a drone. It's real grass. Oh, uh, it is, we did augment it in so much as there were patches missing from the grass. So when we wanted it to be a perfect wall of grass, so we, um, filled those in, but it's all real. There's nothing digital about it. Interesting. And how'd you do that movement at the end? Was that CG? That's, I almost don't want to say, no, it's not. I won't, I won't say what, what it is, but it's, I see, it's not I CG. See. Uh, perhaps the, the uh, wind from the drone blades on the grass then? But uh, Maybe. I shall not speculate further. <laughs> you, 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 then the movie, and by the way, for those who don't know, like an overture is basically the thing that happens before the main uh, piece of music in a symphony, right? Um, so uh, it's kind of the prelude. Now, here we have these opening shots. Uh, where was this filmed, Vincenzo? Well, the movie, uh, 98% of the movie was shot uh, in Toronto, Canada, and nearby Stratford, Ontario, which is uh, where, where the actual field was. <clears throat> and uh, and But this stuff, where you're seeing our characters driving in that very, very flat vista, that is actually near Calgary, mm. Alberta. And earlier we saw the, the bolodrome uh, kind of foreshadowing for, for later on. Now, Vincenzo, I've seen many movies in which a character vomits, and usually they just do it using sound uh, and like the character leaning over a toilet. But somehow in a Vincenzo Natale movie, I had a feeling we might actually see some of that vomit. And in fact, we do several times, including on this nice actress's face. So what, what was behind the decision to uh, actually use vomit versus, I guess you had to show it, right? You, you, because it's part of this opening scene. I, I mean, listen, I thought I was showing a lot of restraint, but um, <laughs> you, you know, I didn't want it to be unrealistically clean. And I actually, I must say, we spent quite a bit of time getting the right vomit sound. Mm, mm. Vomit always seems to come a little bit too easily in movies. And um I agree. So I, wanted, I agree. Uh, yeah. And you really showed, you know, how much work, like, and hey, after you vomit, you want to drink a water. You know, like, it's very, it's a very realistic vomiting scene. What did you use for the vomit itself, just out of curiosity? Uh, that was a combination of pea soup, I mean, classic exorcist formula, pea soup um, with little bits in it, little oatmeal bits. 
Mm. So, um, yeah, good, you know, Dick Smith-esque, Dick Smith being the makeup artist from The Exorcist, uh, pea soup vomit. But you bring up a good point because in terms of the naturalism of our vomiting, that actually speaks to a larger issue, which is that I very much wanted the movie to begin in a naturalistic way. I wanted everything to feel real and normal before we begin this descent into madness. Yeah. So there's a very conscious attempt to, you know, play everything um, as it really might be. Right, right. Um, so I, I, I noticed the opening shot of this movie after the, the kind of overture or prelude started with like a shot in, in the sky. Uh, and is there any reason you wanted to, to begin with uh, a, a shot of the sun? I feel like that shot is replicated several times throughout the course of the movie or referred to, right? Uh, yes. Well, you know, it's, um, it's a, it ultimately, we will call back to it later on when the Travis McKean character shows up. And one of the things that was most intriguing to me about the story, at least the way I wanted to tell it was that the, the first 20 minutes of the film is actually the Stephen King, Joe Hill novella, um, minus a few pieces. And then the movie just reboots itself. Right which is a very unconventional structure. Like normally, you know, the first act is the beginning of the journey. But in this case, the first act is actually like a teaser for the rest of the movie. So we obviously have met our characters, uh, Becky and Cal, played by Lazla de Oliveira and Avery Whitted, correct? Uh, Lysla. Lysla, yes. apologies, yeah. Um, and uh, what were you kind of looking for in these performances when you're casting these actors? Uh, you know, uh, the part that Liza plays, Becky, was a tricky one because she doesn't have, a, by definition of being a pregnant young woman, she doesn't have a lot of physical agency. And, and I was very concerned about casting somebody who didn't have enough kind of um, emotional fortitude to make you empathize with her. Like if she was just a shrinking violet through the whole film, that that would just be a real turnoff. And I wanted a really strong woman. Um, but she, she can only really be strong in the way she comports herself. Not, you know, she can't be an action. She's not Ripley in, uh, in the grass. She can't physically take control. Um, so that's, I think that's primarily why I went with Liza was she just has this kind of uh, strength to her. And and she also has a willingness to really let it rip, like to really let go emotionally and expose herself emotionally, um, all of which are key elements for that character. In fact, for all the characters, because they are all stripped down to their base components by the end of the film. So we see they're going into the grass for, for the very first time. And I mean, I think we'll talk more about this later on, but... Uh, when I watch this movie, I feel like it must have been a nightmare to shoot just because uh, you're in grass, you, the, you're surrounded by mud. And, and I'm just curious, like, was it just like one small section of grass that you recreated over and over again, you know, in the same way that for your first film, Cube, you had like one room that then served as like the many rooms? Like, uh, how did you approach shooting this? You know, what are we seeing that was actually on a location with grass versus on a set? <laughs> All right. Well, I will tell you some of the secrets of the grass. Um, there, we actually, uh, it's a long story. So let me, I'll kind of work backwards from your question, which is how we shot in the grass was we created different stations 
um, that would do different things in the grass. And for instance, we had uh, a circular dolly track for shots where the camera had to do a circular movement. And any any shot that required that setup was shot in that particular area of the field. We had another area that was just for lateral tracking. Um, and so we had an area of the field that was designated just for that. And and then we had these little paths that the actors could move through where we could follow them with steady cam and so on. So believe me, it took a while to actually figure out precisely how to do this. And when you're dealing with a film crew, there's really no force in nature more destructive than a film crew. So uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and the grass is robust as it was. Uh, still, you know, was easily damaged. And so we had to, it's a little bit like working in snow. Like we had to find ways to move all these people and equipment around without destroying our set. And and so there was quite a bit of thought and R&D that went into that. But ultimately that's, that's how we approached it is we created zones for each kind of shot that we were doing. And then we would break up the scenes into those various zones. I mean, frequently we could shoot an entire scene in one location, depending on what was involved. But sometimes we would break out those pieces for those specific kinds of shots. Um, but and actually shooting in the grass was not uh, too difficult. It was really pleasurable. It was beautiful out there. It was summer. It didn't get I, my biggest fear was it was going to get unbearably hot. But actually, we had a cool summer here uh, last year. And, and so it wasn't too bad. And um I think it was hard on the actors, of course, because they were exposed to the elements and the grass itself is serrated. So if you move through it very quickly or even if you just brush against it in the wrong way, it will cut you. So, (laughs) so, uh, you know, it was and there were lots of bugs and so on. And, you know, all the things you naturally encounters in that kind of environment. So it wasn't too pleasant for the actors, but it also wasn't as treacherous as I had anticipated it to be at the this most stressful part of this whole production was actually the prep because we shot this uh, beginning of, I think it was late July, uh, which was sort of the optimal time to shoot in that field, or at least what we presumed would be the optimal time, but we didn't really know. And, and it was all done on supposition and on the advice of the farmer who owned the field because, um, you know, when you make a film, you set your start date and it's kind of set in stone. You cannot easily move it, especially when you have an actor like Patrick Wilson, who's super busy and, you know, is expected to show up for certain days. And if you move his days around, you have a chance of losing him because he doesn't have that flexibility. Um, so not to mention there's a lot of cost involved in terms of you set up offices and everything. And every week that you delay costs many, many thousands of dollars, et cetera. So we really had to target when this grass was going to be at its optimal height. Mm. And and before it became brown and started to flower and do things that we really didn't want to see on camera. And that was all done on the basis of what we presumed would happen. But no one could tell us definitively what it would be like. And in fact, we didn't even 100% know that this particular species of grass was the right type of grass. There's a number of different kinds of tall grass, and this was just one of them. And and because we were prepping this in the late, late winter, early spring, if you walked into this field at that time, there was nothing there. 
just like a few broken stalks. I see. That so were maybe you actually planted, you, you chose the grass and you planted the actual grass that appears in the film. Is that right? No, it was already, it was an existing field, but it's a perennial, the plant is a perennial, meaning it returns every year, but, but it, every year it dies and then it just turns into mulch. Mm. It basically, van- it's a fascinating organism, actually. It just, it basically vanishes. And then in a surprisingly short amount of time, it grows 10 feet from wow. nothing. Um, and, and what was challenging about that was that when we were preparing the movie, we had, we couldn't see our location. It didn't exist. Right. It was just this field of brown dead stuff that wasn't any higher than three feet at most. All right. So, so I, I, I want to cut in here because there's just a bunch of things happening on screen that are really interesting. Like this, uh, uh, circular shot here, right? This shot that like kind mm-hmm. of tilts around here. Uh, how, how did you achieve that? Cause that's generally, that's not a typical shot that you normally have in your, in your arsenal for, uh, uh, for most movies. Uh, well we did, again, I'm sort of hesitant to give away everything, but we, I will say that is a shot that had, um, some digital grass in it and was actually stitched that digital component stitched two live action shots together. So that began looking at a sunset and then we dipped into the grass and then there's a digital transition. So we have digital grass that we pass through that marries to a uh, actual shot of Lysla coming into view as our camera is doing a 360 de- degree rotation. Um, so, and, and the, the purpose of all that, of course, is I very much wanted the audience to be immersed in this space. I think my my role as a director was largely to create um, a very uh, immersive uh, experience for the audience to really make them feel like they're in this place and, and to expressively show what it feels like to be in this place. Yeah. And it, it kind of reminds me of like uh, David Fincher uh, in like uh, a panic room, you know, uh, where he kind of had this virtual camera that would go like would be everywhere. And the idea being kind of that you as the viewer don't even want to experience the presence of the camera. You want to feel like, there is no camera, there's no film crew, it's just you and these people, and you're kind of observing them in an almost omniscient kind of way. Um, that, that's kind of what it evoked for me when I saw that shot. I don't know if that's anything what you're, yeah. what you're going for. No, I, th- I, think, I think that's true. And I, I mean, I was, I, I, not to criticize David Fincher, I, I remember there's a shot where the camera literally passes through the space in a teacup handle. In a coffee mug, right? I or is a coffee yeah. mug. Yeah. And I, that actually was a little distract as a filmmaker is a little distracting to me because I knew that that's physically impossible to do right. with the camera lens. And I, I chafed against it a bit um, because it actually made me feel the artifice of the movie. In this case, I, there were, there was, I'll give you an example. In this case, we did um, a shot that hasn't come up yet where the camera's skimming over digital grass and the animators had put in like two blades of grass that we passed through which looked great. Like it looks super cool, but I asked them to take it out because I thought it, it gave away how we were accomplishing the shot. And I just wanted it to feel real. Um, having said that there are a few instances where our lens passes through a space that no actual camera lens could ever pass through. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually contradicting myself. Um, but, uh, but yes, I think, I think it was really important for me to make us feel the space and to feel um, the enclosure and the claustrophobia of a space, which is sort of ironically an open space, but at the same time is also enclosed. 
So uh, before we get too far out from it, you know, there's there's a bunch of cool moments that happened earlier in the movie uh, that I wanted to ask you about. One was the moment when they first jump into the sky. That's really the moment when they realize like something's horrifyingly wrong with the current situation, right? Like they, it's like, hey, jump, and then they jump, and then they jump again, and but then they're much further away. Um, that's like really the first moment they as characters and we as the audience know that like there's something really supernatural going on here. Curious what were your thoughts on that and like making that the moment uh, versus another moment, right, that that might reveal this um, and how you uh, chose to shoot that moment. Well, that is a very good question, David, actually, because um, this first part of the film is almost verbatim the Stephen King, Joe Hill story. Uh, A lot of the dialogue is lifted directly out of the novella. Um, But I cut a few things in terms of the reveals, because in the story, for instance, you hear Tobin's voice moving around Cal in a way that is physically impossible. And and I actually shot that, but we cut it out of the film because it, it kind of gave away the situation a little bit too quickly. And it, there was a very interesting process for me just in shaping the first 20 minutes of deciding exactly when that moment is where definitively there is something supernatural going on and where the, you know, the, the penny drops for the audience, which you so astutely point out is the moment when they jump up. Um, and there were, there were sort of hints leading up to that, that were a little more explicit, um, drawing you to that conclusion that we decided were best left on the cutting room floor because, um, I think they were tipping our hand too early. So, uh, yeah. And then the way we accomplished that was we actually shot it. We just shot it in two different locations in the field. Mm. So, um, and we shot different versions of it because it was very hard to know when we were shooting exactly what the audience would be able to perceive in terms of Cal's size in the field. Like it's easy to, it's hard to know like what an audience could actually see on screen, especially a Netflix screen, which could be their phone. Um, and we, but we needed it to be definitive that Cal has moved. Like if, if it's not, if he, what we discovered is if he doesn't move a significant amount, people didn't notice surprisingly. Right. Right. You needed and to be really extreme. Like we needed to be really extreme. extreme, basically. Yes. Yeah. And then in fact, and then we ran into a problem because in the shot where he's really far away, he was hard to see. So right, right. in fact, we moved him digitally to, we lifted him up to the horizon line so that you could, you so could discern contrast. his silhouette against yeah. the horizon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise your eye wouldn't pick it up. Interesting. Um, so it was a surprisingly tricky effect. Obviously we've been introduced to Patrick Wilson's character playing uh, Ross Humboldt in this movie. Uh, we'll have, we'll have much more to say about Ross later uh, in, in the course of the movie. Cause he gets many monologues and we'll talk about him more then. But, uh, I, I did. I, you know, in watching this movie again to prep for this commentary track, I did notice he says uh, something like, you know, he asks her about how how far along she is. He asks uh, Becky how far along she is, and he says like, "Enjoy your baby" or, or something like that. Like s- something very ominous, given what happens in the rest of the movie. Uh, I didn't know if that was intentionally foreshadowing or not. Uh, yes, <laughs> but you can't, there's no getting around it. Cause he's just such a monstrous character that virtually anything he says has a double entendre. He says, enjoy your baby it. because it goes fast. I think of the exact <laughs> it goes down fast. It, no. <laughs> wow. wow. It goes fast. Uh, 
Yes. So, so, so tell us about this rock, right? The the design of this rock, like uh, obviously it's something that was written about in the novella, but you had to kind of bring it to life. Uh, I assume this was an actual physical rock, right? And so as you were designing it, uh, what were you trying to achieve? Well, you know, it's funny because when I read the novella, I immediately thought of the monolith from 2001 because it has a very similar function and it's it's also black and it's an enigma and you have to touch it. And and I was desperate not to, you know, call back to the monolith. I wanted I needed this thing to be entirely different. So I where the monolith is smooth and and perfectly, you know, um, geometrically uh, pristine. I decided, well, let's make this rock the opposite of that. Let's make it um, completely asymmetrical and scarred. And when I Oleg um, Savitsky, our amazing production designer, I, um, I said, you know, look, make it look like uh, one of those heads from Easter Island meets Francis Bacon. Make it, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> make it a tortured soul. So um, that was sort of the underlying approach to it. And uh, we, we did a maquette and clay first and fiddled around with it. And, and then it was actually quite a thing to build because it had to obviously be built in a studio type space, but then it had to be transported and, and therefore it had to be carved into pieces. So it was a little bit like a, 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 a puzzle box, Chinese puzzle box, taking it apart and putting it back together again. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what it was made out of styrofoam. Wow. I think it works really well. Uh, obviously there's another like overhead shot we see of uh, Cal's character running towards uh, Becky's screams. Uh, again, another really impressive shot. I'm guessing it was also another drone uh, CG-assisted shot there? That's exactly right, yeah. All right. And one thing I should point out, just in terms of the adaptation from the novella, because obviously if you literally made the novella, you would never get a feature film out of it, or it would be a very, very slow feature film because it would have to be so stretched out because the story is very simple in the the book. but I very much wanted to be faithful to the original story. And so my approach was, well, I'll just, I'll just grow the movie out of the story. I'll keep the story as is, but I'll just grow it out. And, and the only real exception to that was uh, I didn't want to make Ross a villain from the get-go. Yeah. That we, we, delay, we delay that reveal. That we, we, he's sort of ambiguous. If anything, we think he's probably a good guy. And whereas in the book, the moment you see him, you know he's trouble. Right. And uh, so that was one of the the s- larger alterations from the book itself in terms of the material that's in the book that is on screen. But then, of course, there's a whole other story that I layered upon it, which uh, has to do with this fellow here, Travis McKean, who is mentioned in the story. Yeah, um, but, but he's, he's not ever actually, actually a character. Seen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that really, for me, was the moment when I, I realized, well, this can be a feature film, is if, if Travis becomes a player, if this guy actually goes looking for his girlfriend and what happens when he goes into the field. Interesting. Um, here's my question, Vincenzo. This movie deals with some time travel and such. I want to know how you were able to time travel to the Leonardo DiCaprio of 20 years ago and get him to appear in the film. <laughs> no, I'm, ju- I'm just joking. I mean, I, I think I think Harrison Gilbertson, right, is the actor who plays Travis. Yeah, uh, I think he bears a striking resemblance to Leo. But 
Uh, he has this quality. It's interesting. There's a few people in there. Um, he's a lovely, lovely guy. Uh, and you you would uh, almost not recognize him, but he's in um, that uh, film. Um, oh, my gosh. The name is suddenly escaping me. The action movie from last year. Uh, Upgrade. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great movie. Great movie. Yeah. yeah. And uh, terrific young Australian actor. And... Uh, the minute I saw him, I knew he, he was Travis. It's a tricky role, you know, because he's Travis is very singular in what he's trying to do. And there's not a lot of room or time for him to do anything other than just try to rescue everybody. Right. And and I think Harrison has this lovely kind of vulnerability, much as a young Leonardo DiCaprio did, um, that makes him somebody that you instantly relate to. Uh, even without speaking, you know, he doesn't really have any dialogue until at least 10 or 15 minutes after he's appeared. We saw earlier Chekhov's closed church door. I have a feeling that's going to come back uh, in a big way later in the film. But uh, also, as we mentioned earlier, like this this sequence that opens Travis's uh, introduction movie, like starts with that sun in the sky again and kind of like uh, echoing that opening shot but also like echoing the idea that he's also heading into the tall grass, you know, like this, this section is kind of that the opening loop, but played again, just slightly differently. Right. That's right. That's what I meant about uh, variations on a theme. Yeah. And, uh, and I was really, I was very excited about the, the structure of the film because it's not, it's just really, it kind of, it breaks a few rules in terms of what you're supposed to be doing with the screenplay. Um, which some people may hate about the movie, but for me it was exciting because uh, my hope is that when you're watching the film at this point, you really have no idea where it's going. That we've we, we've you know we've pulled a Janet Lee on you. We've we've killed our main characters in the first twenty minutes of the film, yeah. and now we're meeting someone totally new. And at this point as well, like none of this is in the original novella, right? This is all net new content at this point, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what I was I was, you know, because I love Stephen King and Joe Hill so much, I was very concerned about being faithful to the spirit of the novella and also not really wanting to invent anything new. There's nothing, there are no locations or characters in the film that are not at least mentioned in the original story. Like I didn't, I invent situations and I invented the the time loop, but that feels like a natural um, extrapolation from the spatial loops that are going on in the story. So um, I really tried to pretend like as, as much as I could possibly do this, that I was Stephen King and Joe Hill and that I was writing the novel version of their own short story. Yeah. Already we see that Travis is, is uh, uh, more street smart than the other characters, shall we say. He's like tying up bundles of the grass to kind of indicate where he's been, right? Uh, as an attempt to find his way back if he needs to do that. Uh, of course, it, it will eventually prove to be a fruitless act, but I, I like that he was at least trying there. Um, I think it's important, actually. You know, but you, as, as the uh, co-host of Write Along, David, I think you bring up a good screenwriting point, which is we don't know Travis, and he doesn't really speak for a long time, and it's important for him to do things that make us admire him yeah. because he is... A protagonist, one of the well, prota- well, I think it's- and the one thing we know about him until this point is that he abandoned 
uh, Becky, right? So like we're we're inclined to not like him. Exactly. Yeah. And and there's no one for him to play off. Like he is just he's not walking into the grass with anybody. You have no no means of comparison or understanding what kind of person he is through any the eyes of anybody else. Um, we're just alone with him. So it's a th- that simple act of him dropping breadcrumbs, as it were, helps us identify with him. One uh, small touch I want to refer back earlier in the movie from a few minutes ago, like when he arrives at that church parking lot, like there's maggots eating the burger that's in the car. I just thought that was a great little moment of showing exactly how much time has passed since the mm. uh, since the first loop. Like it's clearly been an extremely long time. Um, and I just thought that was like a night, like just a brief shot of the maggots. And then we understand like lots of, you, you don't need to put like four months later on the screen or anything like that. You know, instead you have maggots doing that for you. And I think that's uh, pretty economical. When in doubt, use maggots. When in doubt, use maggots. That's what I'm saying. Sage advice. So then here, uh, Travis meets Tobin. Uh, and, like if if the audience was not sure that there's something weird about this field, this removes all doubt that he's interacting with the Tobin that the, like the same version of Tobin that we saw earlier, and seemingly nothing has changed uh, about Tobin's situation. Um, so one of the yeah, things, go ahead. Oh no, I was gonna say no. It's this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the film, partly because I love both of these actors so much, and Will Bowie who plays Tobin is an incredible young actor. I mean, he is so sophisticated in what he does and such a lovely kid. Yeah, Um, I mean, that's one of the things I was going to ask you is like, I think something that can get really irritating about many movies in general is having a precocious child, right? Or like a a child who's like evil or a child who like knows more than a child should know. Um, I feel like it's like quite cliched at this point, but uh, I don't feel that way about about uh, Tobin in this movie, I think he like gives a great performance. So I'm curious, like, as you were approaching casting the character of Tobin, like, what were some of the things you were looking for, and and what did you want to bring out of this performance? Well, I, you know, it was important to me that he didn't come across as you know Damien from The Omen. Um, in the in the book, he's a little more nefarious, uh, and that's fine in the book, but because there's more facets to him in this story. Well, why, uh, needed, why was it important for you that he not come across as Damien? Like, because it's too cliche or because you think it's fundamentally a different character or, you know, like, what was your reasoning there? I I just think it's a trope. And I think that uh, it was a little too obvious and it, it was unnecessary. I think that Tobin, even this Tobin, who's clearly touched the rock, has some ambiguity about him. And, and it also makes it more intriguing, like, as hopefully the audience is wondering whether he should be trusted or not. And um, so I think that just, you know, it's a little bit of a shading, but it, that little bit of shading does a lot for the character. Yeah. And then we were so lucky to get Will who just has this magnificent face. That's so beautiful and fascinating. And, you know, he has the quality of almost being like an older man and which he really is in life. Like he is a very mat- extremely mature kid. Um, and uh, it's just magic when you have someone like him. Now, I, I want to ask later about, like, you know, how, if and how you shielded him from any, like, disturbing elements of the production. But obviously here they're staring at a dead Becky. 
uh, curious, like, if you feel comfortable sharing how you achieved the look of the dead Becky. Like, was it a dummy? Was it a, an actor made up to look like dead Becky? Like, I'm curious, like, um, oh, it's, you know, how this was accomplished? It's, uh, it's what we call a replica. Um, makeup effects people don't like them to be called dummies generally, but uh, apologies. But it, it <laughs> not at all. But it uh, was something that our, our makeup effects team built, and based on Lysla, and also based on a lot of research in terms of what a body would look like. In truth, a body that was left in a field for two months would be in much worse condition. But mm-hmm. then you wouldn't know it's Becky, so right. we cheated a little bit. And you have this extreme close-up water droplet shot. Can you tell us about like the idea of this and like why you wanted to punctuate the movie at this point with that? Um, well, that was written into the script actually, and and I think it was just a moment to say to the audience, you know, to give them a not not to hit them over the head with it, but to give them a little visual metaphor for what's going on. That we have these multiple worlds that are entwined, mm. and um, and I really love putting injecting some beauty into horror i think that that combination is really really delicious and um i saw this movie as being kind of like a terrence malick horror movie in so much as you know we would really lean on the natural beauty of the environment and 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 make it bright and sunny and bucolic and pastoral and all these things that you don't normally see in a horror movie um so that would that's what that's all about. Got it. There's this moment that we just saw where Travis takes this kind of necklace from Becky, right? This uh, this totem that's going to become pretty significant later on in the movie. Um, so tell us about like like uh, how you conceived of that, how you wrote that. Like the idea, I think you probably came up with earlier on is like you need the kid at the end to present something to Becky that's going to like prove that he knows something, right? And so how did you arrive upon what that something would be? Like, was that always part of the script from the beginning? Uh, and like, was it always part of the script that at this moment that would be when he gets it? I think it, I know, I'm trying to remember. I think it was, the script went through an interesting process. Uh, I don't want to eat up too much time talking about that here, I suppose. But um, I had a very short amount of time to write the script initially because I did the $1 deal with Stephen King, which is this kind of famous pro forma agreement he has whereby you pitch him an idea and then for one of the adaptations of his stories or books, and then if he approves you and he approves it, then you have to only pay $1 to option the material, but you have to meet certain benchmarks in terms of delivering a script and getting it to the marketplace and so on. And so all of this happened just at the moment when I started doing TV work um, for the first time, and I and I was doing an ABCs of death short and like a whole bunch of things sort of landed at the same time. So by the time I actually got to writing the script, uh, it was three weeks before I had to give it to Stephen King and Joe Hill, which was a terrifying, (laughs) absolutely terrifying for me because I, and I had written an outline prior to that, but I, I effectively threw the outline in the garbage and just started from scratch. And I, I wrote it very, very, very quickly. And so that initial script more or less follows the concept that's here, but there was a lot more stuff in it that I was able to later weed. Oh God, I can't believe I'm saying this weed away. Uh, and, um, and it was an interesting, I only mentioned this because I think 
from a screenwriting point of view, it's I often find, and it's interesting to note that I'll in the early stages write something that is basically like the scaffolding for a building. You know, I, I write stuff in because I know I need this to support the overarching idea that I'm after, but I am also aware that it's probably going to get torn away by the end, by the time the building's finished. And and so that early draft of the script, I had Travis go into this town and he meets this guy who's like a gardener who's talking to him about, I, I can hardly remember it actually now, but um, there was, a, there was just more stuff and uh, which I very quickly in the next draft got rid of. But the necklace I think was always there. And in fact, if there's anything that is that we had to cut out of the movie just for pacing reasons that I, I do miss a little bit is there is some discussion about what the significance of that necklace is right. later on in the yeah. bulladromes. Uh, and when you basically learn it's something it's Travis and Becky's first date, they went to this crab shack and he opened a bottle of beer with this silly crab thing and broke a cloth. And then, you know, it just became this cute thing that they had with each other and she made it into a pendant. Um, so that's that's the backstory about it that you'll never hear. Yeah, and why why do you feel like it was cut? Is it just like, hey, we can take that out and it won't like people will still get that it's important or it was pacing. Yeah. I, I would love to have kept it in, to be honest. Um, but it, we the scene in the bullet drum, which we're gonna get to a little later on, was much longer. Mm. And it really was as it stands right now, it's longer than I'd like it to be, given the pace, the flow of the uh, film at that point. So it just had to be exercised just so we could, you know, keep the momentum. Got it. Got it. So here, uh, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think we're going to come up to like a, some nice Patrick Wilson monologuing <laughs> coming up soon, right? Uh, in the uh, near future. Relatively soon, yeah. Relatively yeah. Soon. Um, well, then, b- before we get to that, uh, I guess I just have a really basic question for you. In in that previous sequence, right, when we saw the family go into the grass and, uh, like, it's it's all in one long continuous shot. And I just had, like, a basic, like, procedural question. Like, how did you keep the grass, like, out of the way of the camera lens? Uh, or, or did you? And we just didn't, like, did you not do anything? We just didn't notice? Because I, I guess I just feel like the grass brushing up against the lens would give away that there's a camera there which you don't want right was that ever a problem uh yes yes frequently when we're using the steady cam because when you use a steady cam you've got the operator's body and a lot of stuff um but the the material that you're referring to is all digital hmm. so um we what we actually would do was get rid of the grass we actually would cut holes in the grass for our crane to move through knowing that we were going to add grass, digital grass, um, on top of it later on. Yeah, it's fast. I mean, the the work that Spin, uh, the company that did the digital grass in this movie, um, did is just stunning. I mean, it really, it's kind of flawless, actually. It was a really extraordinary thing to to see what they did. I mean, this shot here where we're looking through this broken pane of glass, uh, there was a field there, but there was other stuff in the background. So there was a lot of trees and things that we didn't want. So they did a lot of you know, um, invisible work, cleaning up things. And it's the best kind of special effects for me. Uh, the, the best special effects are the ones where you just don't know there is an effect. Right, right. Or, or visual effects, I think the term is, uh, Vincenzo. 
is my understanding. Yes, true. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Special effects is actually what you do on a set. On set, right. Yeah. Uh, so th this is interesting because basically at this point we're seeing a recreation of the opening scene, but it's shot, or not the opening scene, but like, you know, the interaction where they go into the grass, but it's shot very differently, right? And I'm curious, what was behind your decision to do that? Because you, you could have done it different ways. You could have done it where you shot it exactly the same, right? But you wanted to clearly say like, hey, this is a different iteration here, right? So talk about the decision behind that. Sure. Well, that's, again, what I mean about variations on a theme yeah. in so much as, you know, we have, and you've seen this in movies before, but repeated action. And, and of course, the last thing you want to do is just prosaically uh, present it the way you've seen it the first time. Um, but more than that, I wanted to give us an overwhelming sense of voyeurism, like, in a way that scene is shot from the perspective of the grass or the rock or mm -hmm. the entity that haunts this place that we are seeing Cal and Becky from a distance through grass, through a broken window pane from above um, as if they're, you know, rats in a lab experiment and um, or that they're being spied upon. And uh, yeah, and that's just the, the overriding feeling that you get, I think. I, I, well, I, I will say that like there are some times when showing it exactly the same may serve some actual like plot or thematic function, right? Like uh, Groundhog Day being a good example, you know, many of those shots being the same because they want you to feel the repetition of the day. Um, but right. yeah, but it, obviously this uh, film takes a different approach. So yeah, and that scene. I mean, I think at the end we do repeat one or two shots at the very end, the third time they show up, but it's to to do exactly what you're talking about, to make a point that, oh, no, this is the exact same moment. Right. Um, but but in that case, it was really important to to shift the perspective and also just to create that slow reveal. I feel like a, a lot of the job that a director has is about deciding when to disseminate information. So if you just shovel it up uh, all up front for the audience, that's kind of boring. And um, I mean, sometimes that's necessary but i'm i'm always of the mind that i want to slowly reveal things in pieces and not show you everything immediately so that your curiosity is piqued and um you know for instance when i'm even in a normal sort of conversation scene i'm disinclined from just starting with an establishing shot it's much more interesting to start on a detail and then slowly open up the world from there mm. Good advice for filmmakers. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, this is the first time really that we see that there can be different outcomes in the loop, right? Like, or like that we, we might, we're seeing a fundamentally different version of what we saw originally where these characters actually meet, right? Like Becky and, and Travis actually meet, whereas obviously the first time uh, that didn't happen. Um, and I guess, you you know, I personally love time travel, time paradox movies. Like, they're some of my favorite films. Uh, time Crimes, Christopher mm. Smith's Triangle. Uh, I, I feel a lot of, like, Christopher Smith Triangle vibes coming off this movie, but I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. Um, but I guess I'm curious, like, were there any uh, movies that inspired you, uh, particularly when it comes to structuring the plot of this movie, which... Uh, does fold in on itself from a uh, time travel, time structure perspective? Um, you know, I didn't really lean on other movies so much, uh, although I'm familiar with both of those films and really love them. I was more 
I in fact didn't want to, I didn't want to make a big deal out of the loop. Um, I, I felt like it was, uh, what was heady and fascinating, um, on some level about the movie, but I wasn't particularly interested in exploring time paradoxes or anything like that. Uh, it was much more about playing out this whole notion of redemption and, you know, what it means to truly have to redeem yourself. And if anything, I was inspired by, um, the myth of Orpheus, <laughs> um, Orpheus in the Underworld, which is the Greek myth uh, about uh, this famous musician, Orpheus, who goes into, to Hades to rescue the love of his life from eternal damnation. And he seduces Hades, the god of the underworld, um, with his beautiful music and leads her out of the underworld, but under the condition that he cannot look back to see if she's following. Um, but he does look back, and then she's cast back into the world of the dead. And so this is kind of the same thing. That's why I made Travis a musician is he's, you know, mm -hmm. coming into this kind of netherworld slash hell purgatory to find Becky and to atone for a mistake that he had made in the, his past, which of course was leaving her um, and, and his unborn child and uh, tries to make amends. And that, that was really kind of the underlying thrust of, of how I approached adapting the story and and the book while it doesn't actually have that story in it it is also about redemption redemption is a big part of of the book and there's a lot of religious references that are being made in the book um that allude to that and uh yeah so that was that was really what was leading me i was i was actually a bit hesitant about the the loop the time loop because i've seen it so many times and i I felt like, well, this shouldn't be a loop, like a Groundhog Day loop, where everything's exactly the same um, with subtle variations. It's much more um, random than that and complex. And and there is a fundamental paradox in play, which I don't feel like I had seen before, which is, of course, that we don't really understand or can understand who went into the grass first. Right. And, and it's, it's a paradox, of course, because uh, the Humboldts, would not have gone into the grass had they not heard Travis calling for help. But of course, Travis could never have gone into the grass had Becky not gone into the grass. And Becky went into the grass because Tobin had gone and the Humboldts had gone into the grass. So it, it, it's a paradox, yeah. um, which I've, I find, that's what I find fascinating. That's what I find mind bending about it. Um, and permissible in this case, because in a, in a sci a true science fiction film that would, maybe be problematic to me, but because we're kind of in a magic realist type realm, I, I think I could permit that paradox to exist. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask you a little bit more about that, but, but actually before I do, just wanted to, it's interesting you say Orpheus. I really like that movie triangle and, uh, the, the explicit reference to mythology in that movie was Sisyphus. So I guess these, um, these mythical characters uh, wind up in time travel paradoxes all the time, it seems, in American pop culture. Uh, but with regards to what you just said, one of the big challenges of a movie like this is figuring out what the rules are and like how many rules to convey to the audience, right? Because I feel like too few rules and it feels like nothing can have like has stakes, but too many rules and it can be boring or it can feel too literal. Uh, and so as you're thinking of like, how to structure the rules, you know, what, what was important to you 
when you were designing that from 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 a uh, script perspective, right? Because like obviously some things need to have like so for instance like the bola drone they're heading towards it right now as far as I can tell, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so they need to be they like they get there at some point, right? So like that the grass is going to let them get there, but like it doesn't let them get to other things like the road. So I, I guess I'm curious, like yeah, tell us about like how you think about rules in your movies and specifically this one. Sure. Well, in that case, Freddy gets them there, but um, uh, or will get them there. But uh, my approach with magic, not science fiction, but magic, which is what this is. It's not. There's nothing scientific about this. Is um, the rules are not important in the way that people often feel that they are. I think there's a tremendous need for the Hollywood executive to have everything explained and for everything to make perfect sense. Um, which is problematic for the reasons that you've explained in that it's boring to know all that stuff. And I I don't think it's really necessary. What's important is not to contradict yourself. Like magic, there is no explanation for magic. Magic is not, it's not science. There's no, (laughs) there's no experiment that can be performed on magic to understand how it works. It, it, it is, it is what it is. It's magic. So, but, um, which doesn't mean it doesn't function uh, with rules. It's just that I don't think those rules need to be dealt with in the same way that you would with a science fiction film where you're in a completely logical, uh, empirically measurable universe. And, and so what's more important is just to create rules that, um, or to avoid contradicting your own rules. That that's where I think you cross a line that is very frustrating for the audience is if you say this world works one way and then it works in another way. Right. Um, but I don't think, and this is maybe not everyone will agree with me, but I don't think you need to explain everything. I think that that's, that's really boring and actually takes away from the mystery. I, I very much did not want to explain what the rock was. Um, I very much wanted to leave that open for interpretation and I didn't feel like I needed to tell the audience exactly how the grass works. I just wanted to intimate how it functions and, um, uh, having said that, I think there's a lot of subtlety that goes on with this kind of stuff. And we, in the editing process, you know, we would we were very careful in terms of the dialogue and pulling certain things out and actually adding certain things in ADR just to make sure that the audience is getting enough to follow what's going on, but not too much. So just now there was a section that was uh, pretty trippy Vincenzo, uh, where you see grass like going into her uterus around her baby and stuff like that, and like a bunch of other stuff. Like one of the trippier sections of the movie. Um, just wanted to before we move too far past it. Can you speak a little bit to what you're trying to accomplish there? I think it's about this um, very internal uh, surreal aspect that the grass has. That it's you know it's it's functioning on a psychological level, and it's um, I guess it's what I meant by putting poetry into a horror film that it's, it's, it's dealing with things. It's, it's kind of a universe where, um, that is also a kind of dream space and, uh, which actually I find that Stephen King works in, and very often Joe Hill does. It's, you know, it's funny. Um, the story, I can hear both of their voices. I think they're both wonderful writers and I, and I, but I actually think they're surprisingly distinct from each other. And I, I hear both of their voices at work and in particular Joe, because he does, a, he has a kind of folksy magic realism that, 
um, permeates his work and is really a part of this world that that excited me. I really wanted to create, give the grass a kind of um, uh, anthropomorphize it and give it a kind of personality, and and that's a lot of what that sequence is about is is giving it a voice in that it's trying to basically it wants her baby of course, um, and to sort of express that through uh, poetic imagery. I really appreciate the scene of them walking through uh, the grass and just like getting to know each other, just like regular dialogue that uh, people making small talk would actually have, but it helps to fill in a lot about what you might not know about these characters, uh, particularly uh, Travis, for instance. Like this is when you find out he's a musician, right? So, yeah, exactly. And it was a you know it was a tricky movie for me because. Um, there aren't a lot of opportunities for the characters to do that. And they don't really meet up until quite deep into the movie. Normally, with a normal movie, 30 minutes in, everybody knows each other. Right. And and then it's just about developing those relationships. But in this case, people are meeting each other or meeting each other again. <laughs> We're meeting them as a group quite late into our film. And, and that was, I hope it works. Like that was always one of the risks is, well, are you going to identify with them and relate to them and care about Becky and Travis's relationship if you've never actually seen them together. Um, and uh, and I actually wrote a scene where they break up that was a flashback. Um, and we shot it. And it was the first thing I cut out of the movie. Because, and I, and I, I kind of wrote it and shot it knowing it probably would be cut out. But I wanted to protect myself for that reason. Because I was I was worried that well, I don't think the audience, it's possible the audience might not care about their relationship and them being together if they've never seen them together at any point. Um, but then when I put that scene in the film, it completely destroyed the mood of the movie. Mm. It just felt like it belonged in another film entirely. And, you know, once you, I've, I had this experience with Cube a little bit too, but when you create an environment like this, um, it's really important that you stay in it. I think you, like if we were to cut away to the police station now, the whole film would be ruined. <laughs> your, your suspension of disbelief and the, the kind of seduction that comes from coming into a strange place like this really only works if you stay there and you can't step easily, at least you can't easily step away with it from it without it sort of destroying the, the mood and, and your suspension of disbelief. I think and the, that's only, also part, the, the only scene that takes place outside of the church and the field uh, and the bulldrome, which is arguably part of the field, is when he's at is when uh, Travis is at that gas station, right? Um, I think like everything else in the movie kind of is field adjacent. Uh, that's right. So, and when when he was at that gas station, it almost felt like transgressive because it's like, oh my gosh, we're actually not in the field anymore. Uh, yeah, but, but it was just for like a minute, so. Uh, and and I, I think because we're also getting to know that character, and it's like close to the field, it's it's not too far. But if it had been a flashback to like their first date or the breakup or whatever, it, I think you're right. It would have really ripped you out of the movie. Well, that's why I, all that stuff I wrote in the town, I immediately threw away. Mm. And and uh, I think it's a good screenwriting lesson in so much as um, uh, it's amazing how much you can make out of a few elements that often less is more. And when I was writing this screenplay, it was constantly a process of me going back to the original story. Like I would write a draft 
uh, and then I would go away for a while and do something. And then I'd come back and frequently I would just read or listen to this, the audio version of the story again. And I would hear things that I had never heard before or notice things I had never heard before. And, um, and it was always inspiring me. I would see new layers to it. Uh, it, and it's amazing given that that whole story takes place in this field of grass. There's so much there. I could make a, I could easily make a sequel to this movie. I don't, there's, there's a lot of things I wanted to do in this film that I just simply didn't have the money for. Um, a lot of imagery and, uh, things that I would really love to have explored further. So, um, for anyone, yeah, who wants to pick up their iPhone and go into a field, um, or, you know, wherever an abandoned car lot or, uh, and make a movie, it's surprising what you might find. Amazing shot here of Patrick Wilson getting seemingly worshipped <laughs> by the grass. Very cool. Oh, yes, Patrick. Now, was that digital, like, uh, eyes, or was it, like, did he wear contacts for that shot? It was digitalized. Uh, nice. Very convincing. Yep. Um, now, one of the big changes that you make from the novella is that in the short story, uh, Natalie, who plays... Uh, who is, I should say, uh, Ross Humboldt's wife, Patrick Wilson's character's wife, uh, is dead already, I believe, right? Um, I don't think you see Ross murder her in the course of the story, if I'm not mistaken. No, you, right. if I'm, I hope I'm remembering correctly, but you hear her calling out. Right, correct, correct. But you never, I don't think you see her until she's just a corpse, or at least correct. Yeah. So, so you actually put her murder on screen, uh, in in like one of the most gruesome ways imaginable, I would say, which is like getting her skull crushed. And uh, curious, like, uh, what was behind that decision to like make Natalie an actual character in the movie, and also to have her skull get crushed? You know, it's funny that was um that came later later in the writing process, and it was a key moment because we needed to understand how dangerous Ross is, and and without that demonstration that on-screen demonstration, I don't think he would be nearly as frightening. Uh, and it's a very transgressive, disturbing scene, of course, because it's all happening in front of Tobin, um, her child. And, uh, and, and I think every horror film needs a moment, you know, whether it's a chestburster scene or the shower scene in Psycho where you push people to somewhere that they're not comfortable. And, and, it, it, and, then, and then it really becomes something frightening. So I, that was really the reasoning behind it. And then it also... It does lead Ross to um, postulate as to exactly what is going on. Like, why is she here? Like, obviously, the grass wanted her to be here for a reason. And it's not just random. Nothing's random here. So what is it? And you, you start to understand through that internal conversation he's having what how this place functions and what the rock means to him and and how he sees his role in this world, which is what I love about Ross is that in his mind, he's just trying to help, you know, <laughs> yeah. like he's just, these kids have lost, he's like any kind of religious zealot. These kids have lost their way and he's trying to save them. I mean, he genuinely thinks he's doing that, um, which is what makes it even more terrifying and funny. Um, and that's, that's what it's all about with Natalie is, well, the rock has deigned to bring her here for a purpose. Right. And then when he kills her, of course, for him, it's like a, you know, he's superhuman. It's, a, it's just this tremendous tremendous moment of affirmation. And, of course, I think he always had latent murderous feelings towards his wife. Um, not that he would have necessarily acted on them in the real world, but here in the grass, without any kind of supervision, um, he's free to 
behave any way he wants. So obviously we got to talk about Patrick Wilson a little bit. I mean, I th- I think he's amazing in this movie, uh, and cast against type as far as I can tell. Right? I mean, I think uh, Patrick Wilson generally pay- plays pretty wholesome characters from my experience. <laughs> I mean, he, he definitely is able to play the villain every now and then. But I mean, I just saw him in Watchmen, the uh, Zack Snyder movie, because I was mm. you know I've been watching the new uh, series on HBO. And uh, like the Conjuring series, like he's a pretty wholesome guy, and he gets to just go full blown nutso in this movie. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm curious, like, what what was important for you when you're casting the character of Ross Humboldt? Like, what 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 did you want to find uh, that you felt like Patrick's performance brought out? Well, you're so astute, David. That's it's all those things. That's exactly right. It was important to cast originally. Actually, um, James Marsden was going to do it. Yeah, that's uh, right. And I knew him, I knew him from Westworld for exactly the same reason because, and I love him. He's a wonderful actor and a great guy. And uh, and I just thought it'd be so fun to see James Marsden go completely psycho because that's not the guy you know, and you don't. And then, therefore, of course, you don't anticipate it. I mean, if if we met Walter Goggins in the grass, well, we. <laughs> kind of know from where to go where it's headed walton Gargans, um, i believe yeah but yeah oh walton gargan excuse me walton goggins yeah. um but with james who wasn't able to do it unfortunately um but also with patrick uh i just felt well here's somebody that you know we could believe this is this guy's gonna save the day and and we we want to like him and and yet i knew with patrick he was more than capable of going to this place. And I, in fact, the first movie I'd ever seen him in was hard candy. Right. Uh, where he plays, a, a tr- he plays a pedophile in that movie. Yeah. Where he plays a pedophile. So I know he hit it. I know he had it within him. And, uh, and in fact, Patrick had always been very high on my list. Um, so when James dropped out to do Sonic the Hedgehog, I might point out, um, uh, well, he wanted to go hardcore horror. Don't you know that? Vincenzo, he he. This was not terrifying <laughs> enough for him. That's why he chose Sonic. Um, and, and you know, perfectly legitimately, of course. But um, <laughs> uh, but then we went back to our list, and I was like, oh, Patrick, maybe. But I I didn't think I would get Patrick. I didn't think I would be able to afford him. And um, but he, you know, it was a tricky role for a, a, an actor like that because it's such a heinous character. And I think a lot. I know that a lot of actors who are leading men are afraid to play that kind of role. And I think it showed tremendous ballsiness on Patrick's part to, to take it on and then to do it with such gusto. I mean, he really, he really went for it. And yeah, I mean, he's he was, a pretty unlikable character by at least this point in the movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's, he's completely <laughs> repulsive. I mean, um, yeah. and yet, you know what he also brought to it that I, I really was so very grateful for and that I didn't, imagine when I was writing the part is that, you know, he's this, you like him. Like he's this matinee movie star kind of guy. He's so good. He's just so damn good looking. And then he does everything really, really well. If you read the book, he's more of a Jack Torrance, you know, kind of sad sack loser, sad suburban dad who has gone insane. But with Patrick, it's more like, no, he's this Uber mensch. He can do, you know, he was, he was like a football star, a track and field star. He he was like a great musician. He's erudite. He's read Borges. Like <laughs> he's he's like this incredibly magnetic, good-looking, powerful guy. And so uh, 
there's a lot to like about him, even when, even though he's completely psychopathic. So that's Patrick. I think he brought yeah. all of that to this. And I know you, even people who don't like the movie like Patrick in it because he's just so fantastic. I, I will say the moment when he crushed his wife's skull was the moment I stopped liking him as a character. But that's just that's just me. I know everyone has a different breaking point. Um, <laughs> but just like throwing my own my own preferences out, <laughs> like liking and and being, uh, <laughs> being and drawn. enjoying watching are two different things. <laughs> and I don't think there's ever a moment in this film where I don't enjoy watching. Fair no, uh, completely completely agree. Okay, so uh, we are now at the Bulladrome, and I do want to ask you like uh, extremely basic kind of filmmaking technique question. But a lot of this movie takes place at night, which by the way is an addition. Uh, that you made, I, I think the entire novella takes place in the afternoon, right? Like the, the time doesn't change in no, the field? No, it goes tonight. Oh, it goes tonight. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm misremembering yeah. then. But uh, how did you shoot the night scenes? Did you do day for night where like you shot it during the day and then you converted it to look like it was night? Or did you shoot it at night and then just have like floodlights blasting everywhere? Like how did you do night for this movie? I almost hate to say this, but um, anything you see at night is in studio. Oh, we're in a studio. Interesting. There is there is there is no outdoor night photography in this film at all, including this so, all the stuff at the Bulladrome right now. Yep. Yeah. This is all. This is a set. Um, the interior of the Bulladrome is actually a real uh, dilapidated uh, bowling alley we found amazingly uh, that we dressed up a little bit, although it was already in pretty bad condition. Uh, so so that's really how the film the shoot was bifurcated between field location, field day. And then studio field night. And um, it was an interesting thing. You know, the studio, we actually brought the grass into the studio with all the earth and everything. There was no, basically, the studio became a giant planter <laughs> for all of this grass. Right. And, uh, and again, it, it was an experiment. We didn't really know would the grass survive under those conditions. And, um, but it did. It was a, uh, fairly robust organism and it and it even sounded like we were outside because there were crickets that came along with it and they would chirp and uh all day in the studio so here's a question i have for you vincenzo you know we already have uh uh this guy russ murdering his wife in brutal fashion uh already extremely disturbing right um we had a dog die earlier uh, what was your thinking about throwing incest into the mix? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, come on. <laughs> Gotta spice it up, David. It's not enough. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I'm just like, wow, this is already, uh, this movie's already showing me a lot of horrifying things. Uh, let's, let's add in incest as well. Like, um, I, I guess, I, you know, I'm being a little facetious, obviously, but I'm curious, like, why you thought incest organically grew out of the existing story. You know, actually, I think it did. If you read the story closely, right? I think that I'm not saying it is in the story, but I I think it could be interpreted that way because it the if the opening I don't know page or two of the story is just about their relationship and how close they're together, and they even talk about Cal potentially or you know watching uh, Becky have sex with Travis when the baby was conceived. Right. That's in the story. Yeah. So. I mean, they don't say he did that, but but that that it's hard to imagine that he 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 wouldn't have because he's always with his sister. 
Right. And yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt you for this shot. Oh, yeah. This amazing long continuous shot where like Patrick Wilson's behind, and then he seemingly <laughs> comes out of the side of the frame. I assume right. that was a Patrick Wilson double that came out of the side. That, that's correct. Yes. Excellent. Re- really yeah. well done. It's it was it fun. was a shocking moment when it happened because it it feels like Patrick Wilson is especially because it's one long continuous shot. It feels like Patrick Wilson is bending the laws. Of time and space. <laughs> if anyone which, could do it. If anyone could do it. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just thought oh, like, I love that moment in the movie. Anyway, continue. And continue. I should point out there's a very beautiful speech here that Patrick's giving that Joe wrote, Joe Hill wrote. Mm. Um, that's not my writing. It's him. And uh, it's my, actually my favorite dialogue in the whole movie. Uh, anyway. Um, yes, where were you? Incest. Well, but, you know, I didn't put it in just to be gross. Uh, I put it in because the movie needed a love triangle. And I thought that, you know, that was sort of the dramatic juice that I was going to milk out of the situation with Travis coming back into the grass. And it's and by the way, I don't think definitively Cal does have incestuous feelings for his sister. I don't think that that's an absolute. Um, I don't know how far it goes probably he does but it's not i don't think it's anything he would act on in the real world just like i don't think in the real world i mean outside the grass ross would never kill his wife you know whatever latent feelings they might have had to those ends would never have been pursued um but in this world world, but in this world cal is more than willing to uh, eliminate his romantic competition totally in the unsupervised world of the grass these darker aspects of the characters come to the fore. And that's, that's what this is really all about. And, uh, and then of course the tragedy is that had Cal not done that, they probably would have gotten out. You know, it's, it's, it's not the grass that ended up screwing things. It was Cal. And, and that's why when Becky calls herself later on on the phone, she's saying, don't let Cal hurt Travis. That's, that's why this thing keeps repeating. Uh, so that that was very intrinsic to the narrative of the story. That's it's not. I'm not putting incest in there just to be you know, sensational or gross. It really. Uh, I, would it, it would never never I would never accuse you. I would never accuse. I mean, not that I not that I'm, I have anything against being sensational and gross. As well <laughs> exactly. 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 Um, uh, and uh, a few things I want to point out about like what's what's going on here. There's this very lovely moment that's happening between uh, Becky and Travis's character. I really appreciate like that. This this idea, right, of what's happening in this scene is that they're like, they they can talk to each other, they feel really close, and yet they're like separated by the the field's machinations, right? Mm. I, I I really enjoyed that uh, that dynamic. Uh, and earlier on, I, I I did just want to comment on this great shot you had where we saw like uh, uh, the the ghosts of Cal's past, right? Like all the uh, all the different Cal's that have been murdered in earlier versions <laughs> of the Loop. Right. Yeah. In, yeah, in various was, states of decomposition, you had to do right. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was, again, I I could make another grass movie because there's just so much fun stuff to be done with all these notions, and um, but that was one that I was permitted to do, and uh, it's, it is one of my favorite moments. So this night um, stuff, as you said, takes place in studio, right? Like that's, yeah, this was all shot in studio. Yeah. It was the, kind of the latter half of the of the shoot. We started off in the real field. Um, but I, just to harp on this for a moment, the emotional part of the story, I, to me, the Cal Becky thing is 
even though it's not in the book, in order for this to be a movie, it had to have something that had that kind of emotional poignancy to it. And that that was the raise in a way it's the raison d'etre for the movie. Actually the raison d'etre for the movie was eating the baby. But aside from that, it was, it was to, you know, to tell a story about um, a mistake that was made in someone's life and this desperate attempt to correct it, which I think is a, you know, a universal experience. Yeah, I didn't even mention the cannibalism yet, which I, I will say is, like, pretty vague. Oh, by the way, amazing shot here where, like, the camera's kind of, like, rotating again, right, to to kind of keep track of Becky. Um, that was fun. Yeah, it's, you know, I'll say this. Um, I mean, everyone has their own methodology, but I get to make movies so infrequently that I just... Uh, <laughs> When you I have can't the toys, myself. yeah. When you have the toys, you're like, you want to, you got to make the best I, use of them. Right? I have to fight to, exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, this is sort of an example of the other thing that I really loved about the story and the whole concept of it was just seeing uh, nature in the I, raw and the. I think something's mud. wrong with my Netflix app, Vincenzo. It looks like Planet Earth started playing. For a second, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we might have gotten a few shots from Planet Earth. <laughs> um, I'm sure they've got some great tall grass. Uh, but yes, there's just so much beauty out there, and and I love how lush it is. And as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast or the, this um, commentary is that it's important to ground the audience before you go spinning off into craziness like this, that um, if you start in a place like this, then there's nothing for them to relate to or hold on to. And, and therefore when you get to this place, it's 10 times more effective because now they're on for the ride. And because now they have a point of comparison. If everything's crazy, then you really don't know. Then it doesn't even appear to be crazy because there's nothing to compare it to. But if things start in a very real way, much as Stephen King often does in his novels, and why I think he is so successful and brilliant at what he does, is he he grounds us in these characters and these places that are so familiar and in some ways mundane, um, but real before he spins it off into some kind of craziness. There was this incredible but shot. Of course, where, this is the crazy. Yeah, there's this crazy shot where like the the grass is like pulsating, really impressive. Like, how, how do you do you mind divulging how you did that, or like is it more digital effects or? It's more digital magic. Yeah, yeah that's a that's a digital field. Uh, of yeah. course, you could never actually do that with real grass, um, and that in fact was a much longer sequence. I have, if you go to my website, you'll see it um, in the storyboards. But I I had a very a long sequence where Becky's being carried through the grass and you see things in the grass. You see the grass people. It's basically like um, the rites of spring or like a fertility dance, but they're all copulating with each other and then giving birth. And um, it's basically sort of a, just classic Vincenzo Natale stuff. 
pretty. It would have been so much fun, but it was incredibly expensive. It was a half a million dollars, uh, half a million dollars more than I had. So unfortunately, I was not able to do it. But um, where is that website if people want to look at it? That's uh, Vincenzo-Natali.com. And uh, you can get more information, more stuff than you want to know about my movies there. But um, the, the entire storyboard for Grass is there. And, uh, and, and much of that imagery was inspired by this fantastic Japanese manga artist, Shintaro Kago, who is famous for his, if you think what I do is extreme, that's nothing. It's, <laughs> it's complete, or it's, it's completely it's Mickey Mouse. It's compared, play. Yeah. It is child's play compared to what Shintaro Kago does. Uh, and, uh, he's truly a surrealist, uh, but very macabre, strange, uh, stuff. And, I managed to get a hold of him and meet him in Tokyo, and he very kindly um, did, tw- I don't know how many it was, like maybe 20 very beautiful, strange drawings, all of which you can see on the website. Yeah. This is uh, an incredible sequence here because, like, the, the earth opens up, and it's almost like like you're looking into hell, right, with these um, mm. all these uh, creatures kind of clawing on top of each other. There's actually a, 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 a sequence from Hannibal, I'm not sure if it was an episode you worked on, but like there was a very similar sequence in Hannibal that this reminded me of, and I, I got a like Vincenzo tingle because I know you've worked on that show. It's totally Hannibal-esque. Yeah. Uh, and I think I know what you're talking about. You're probably talking about the silo with all the, the bodies. The silo where they, he glued everyone yeah. together, yeah. Yeah, that's not me. That was that was Tim Hunter, yeah. uh, who I adore. Um, but of course, Brian Fuller, who made Hannibal. And I feel like, I don't feel like this movie would be the movie that it is had I not had my Hannibal experience. Right. Um, so yes, you are absolutely right. So, uh, one thing that, uh, is true in both the film and the novella, and please tell me if I'm characterizing this correctly, but my understanding is from both the film and the novella, it is never explicitly clear that she is being fed her baby in this sequence. In the novella, um, it's not stated outright. But that's what she's doing. <laughs> you're and, just, and, and, you're and just and removing all that. You, do you have I the so. confirmation no, no, from she Joe ate the baby. <laughs> she totally ate the baby. I, well, I, I don't think he ever said that to me. But I – now it's been a while since I've read the book. But I, I do recall that it – I mean there's no other explanation for what she's eating. Um, but they had the good taste, so to speak, to not – openly say it, which was really my approach here. I didn't want to, you know, show anything that was discernibly baby being ripped apart. Um, but she's eating her baby. <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty fucked up. Vincenzo. I, I talked to Joe, talked to Mr. King, but, uh, but it was the, it was, like I said before, it was the raison d'etre of the movie in a way, because it was so disturbing. And when I read, when I read the novella, I truly was taken aback by it. But I thought so powerful and, and again, not um, excessive necessarily, not, it was very, it was very um, at the core of what this story was about. And I think what the film is about, which is getting to the, you know, to the, the nitty gritty of, well, what does it mean to be human? Are we just grass? Uh, you know, the, the Ross's line, all flesh is grass is a biblical quote, which I believe refers to exactly that, the, the notion that, you know, we are but grass, we are transient entities that are only in this world for a short time. 
And so the whole idea of, you know, this baby, this new life coming in and then being absorbed by the mother and then being absorbed by the field is a very I think, chilling metaphor for our lives. Like we are where we come from the earth and we're going back in mm. and there's no getting around that. And, um, and so I, it, it's actually quite poignant and it's, um, yeah, it's powerful stuff. Uh, I think a movie that actually that reminds me of is like Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. I think that like that movie really brings that idea to life as well, right? The <laughs> idea of the whole movie. That movie is about this guy who fears death, and then you know, spoiler for The Fountain, but like basically ends up accepting his place in the the cycle of life. Um, and, I thought uh, you were going to say mother, actually. Oh yeah, um, because they eat the baby and mother. <laughs> And let me tell you, I was not happy when I saw that. Yeah. I, I really didn't think I would anyone would trump me on this one. I, I did I, not think that another movie would have, another major studio movie would have a baby eating scene. But uh, there you uh, go. So you, had already, you were already working on this movie when that movie came out, you're saying? Oh, yeah. I wrote this script six years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when it, you saw it, it you were like... But it took a long time to get made. You, you, your first fear was, why. how am I ever going to, <laughs> you don't know why it took you so long to get made. You, you, your first fear was, oh my gosh, is mother going to have a better baby eating scene than mine? Um, yes, precisely. No, it's, it's very unnerving. I mean, because in that movie, you actually, you actually see the baby get eaten. Like, it's not even in doubt, whereas you wanted it to be more artful in this movie, right? I, I think I went for the more sophisticated approach. Mm. <laughs> no, I really, it was... Listeners, uh, if you agree or disagree, <laughs> at Vincenzo Natale on Twitter is where you can That's voice right. your concern. You can, you, can, uh, you can let me know how you feel. Yeah. No, I, 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 first of all, I'm a huge fan of uh, Mr. Aronofsky's work. And I, I actually like Mother quite a bit. Um, and, uh, uh, and so when that scene happened, I, it, it, it disturbed me in the wrong way. It disturbed me in the sense that I felt like he got there first. We should say, by the way, that it's uh, at Vincenzo underscore Natale. There's a different Vincenzo Natale who's just at Vincenzo Natale. I, I don't want people to make that mistake. Right, yeah, we don't want to... I don't, don't want to send people asking about baby eating to the other Vincenzo Natale. Yeah. No. Um, so, <laughs> so um, by the way, like, uh, I, I do, are, are you familiar, by the way, that there's another Netflix movie that ends in almost exactly the same way that this movie ends? No. Okay, well. Don't tell me this, David. I don't want to know about it. Are, are, there, there's a, else the same ending? There's basically another Netflix movie. That's, that is a Netflix horror movie that has a character, like, fading into the grass um, uh, as well. So, what is that? Uh, well, I, I can't – now I, I can't say what it is without spoiling that movie. But uh, I, I will tell you afterwards. But suffice to say, I, I guess you didn't know about it. Um, no. But that's cool. I mean, it's, well, it's, a, know, it's an extremely different movie than yours. So no worries. I'm sure it is. And listen, this happens all the time. That's why – you know, it's. I think that's why it's very hard to sue someone for plagiarizing someone else's movie because these things are just in the air. I really believe in it. Like, I really believe in a collective unconsciousness. There were, right. you know, like, it's not. It's not a coincidence that like two meteor movies come out at the same time. Or it's. It's just in the air. Yeah, and, I mean, um, between the baby eating and the people being consumed by grass, um, their flesh being consumed by grass. I mean. I'm surprised there aren't eight movies like that. <laughs> maybe they're in the works. I'm being a little facetious. But there's, you know what? There are a lot of, it seems like, all of a sudden are these folky horror films. 
Yes. Um, and why is that? I don't know. But here we are. I mean, I, as I say, this is a story that was written, I think it was like 2008 or something like that. And and I've had this script for uh, almost six years. Um, but why now? Who knows? <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, Travis is being killed. Yes. Or at least disemboweled by a bone. Something, uh, one of my, the podcasts I uh, am inspired by here on Culturally Relevant is uh, the, the Q&A podcast by Jeff Goldsmith. Um, and I uh, really enjoy listening to that podcast as well. It's great, great insight into the filmmaking screenwriting process. One, one question that Jeff always likes to ask his, uh, his guests is like, what, is, what was the hardest scene to write? Or in this case, what was the hardest scene to write and what was the hardest scene to shoot? Because a lot of the shoot does look really challenging. Uh, you know, it was surprising. Well, listen, we had a lot of good luck. It could have gone off the rails. We didn't have a big budget on this. And, um, uh, and really it was the outdoor stuff that was scary to me because it was crammed into a small period of time and any intemperate weather of any significance would have completely screwed us. Um, and not just for our schedule, time-wise, but also because we were going to lose Patrick, and it just would have created this whole series of issues. Like a cascading sequence of events, basically. That's right. That would have been not pleasant. Uh, but uh, the weather held out. In fact, literally storms would part around us as we were shooting. Like, it would rain on one side of the road and the other side of the field, and we would be totally dry. And anyway, so we, I think we just had a lot of good luck on this one. Um, and it went really to schedule and everything worked and all the actors were awesome and great to work with. And, um, yeah, it was, it wasn't so bad actually. Uh, the hardest thing to write was the ending. I, um, I wrote many different endings for this story, uh, including one that was completely faithful to the book. Um, but you know, it's one of those, uh, situations- we should say in the book, I believe like a whole different set of people shows up, uh, at the church and then like follows the voices into the tall grass, right? Like, right. Yes. That, it has a kind the, of, yeah, that's right. Like a standard, Oh, it's happening again right. type ending. Yeah. And, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, uh, but that's sort of an addendum to Becky's story at the end of the book. Um, of course there's no Travis in the field. It's just Cal. And he comes to her and says, he feeds her the baby. And then he says, you know, come with me. And he gets to the rock, and I think Tobin's there, and they have her touch the rock. And that's it. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's really dark. It's like a nihilistic ending, which yeah. I, I... No pers- one gets out. No one gets out, right? Nobody gets out. No no one is redeemed. Hey, hey, um, so I, I want to ask you, actually, I want I, if you could hold that thought for a second. You just did this shot where you, like, panned around while Travis is choking Russ to death. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, yeah, what were your thoughts, like, uh, about structuring the shot that way? That was, um, I actually wrote that into the script because I, uh, meaning that I, it was very much in my mind and important to me because I wanted Ross's strangling to take the time that it would take to really kill somebody. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I mean, that's, that's, a just, hard... that's just you being considerate, really. You just want, why <laughs> <laughs> you, just, well, you want it to be realistic? Right? You know, for all the people out there who have strangled people and go, well, come on, that's yes. really, it can't take that long to. I mean, that's just too short a time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that's, that's who you're making this movie for, obviously. And uh, so it was it was important. But, you know, what do you do? Like, it's it gets a little bit repetitive after a while. And then uh, I, it, it was the sense that I, I wanted, it was that combined with the sense that I wanted to feel like 
this is what The Rock always wanted. Mm. That, you know, that Ross's deal with The Rock was a Faustian bargain and that every time it, it fucks him over in the end. And, and he's just one more sacrifice to it. So, you know, that's hopefully the impression you get as we're moving through this field. And you're, I think we even have sounds that sound like a, a, a Roman Colosseum crowd chanting. You know, it's, it's like two gladiators in the Colosseum and they want Ross to die. You know, they want blood. And uh, so that's what that's all about. You, you have like a beating heart here, right? Very. I notice like the... Uh, the imagery like shifts between very abstract to like sometimes very literal, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, um, I don't get, or one doesn't get to do this kind of thing too often. (laughs) When you go into a strange grassy field, you get away with murder. And it's, um, you know, as I say, like if given a larger budget and maybe it's good that I didn't have a larger budget, I would have overindulged myself if I'm not doing that already. But, uh, there was just such fantastic imagery to be mined from this place. And I really, really wanted to get into the the mud and the dirt and the these primal elements. I wanted at this point for the audience to feel like, you know, it's a rather like they did not to make a com- comparison, of course, but in Apocalypse Now where you've reached the end of the river and you're really in the heart of darkness. And these people have been reduced to their most base components and, you know, any sense of decorum or a civilized self has completely been eradicated. That's, that's really where they needed to be by the end. Mm. And, um, and that kind of imagery just, you know, flows from that. It's very exciting to me. So uh, about that ending, you were talking about how you'd written different endings. You'd written like one that was similar to the one in the novella. Um, I wrote, yeah, I wrote, I had Travis burn the field originally. Yes, which is also a reference. Um, it, that, that also is an idea he has, or a character has. Uh, yes, Cal. The, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Cal has that Sorry. idea in the short story, uh, or the novella, to to burn the field. So that was also an idea you had. I actually had Travis burn the field. In that version, Travis burned the field, and the rock cracked open to reveal that it was a pod. Its spores spread out and drifted to other places. Mm. Um, but, uh, that just felt a little hyperbolic. And, and also I think at that point, Travis got out of the field with Becky and it just, it felt like he was then not making a sacrifice. Like the point of the movie is that to redeem oneself, there is a price. And what the rock offers is a, is a, is a, is a false redemption, which probably one could equate with a lot of religions that say, you know, if you eat this, wafer and drink this wine and if you dip yourself in the water or whatever you're going to be redeemed but of course that's you know wow that's not really what, how it works so <laughs> we, we need to to redeem ourselves we need to 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 actually give something up and uh and travis gives himself up gotcha I, I, I didn't know if you if we were getting your uh, opinion on, on organized religion just now as well <laughs> i think it's kind of endemic to the story i mean i don't I, I, of course, believe people should believe whatever they want. Um, I'm not opposed to organized religion per se, but I, I, what I am opposed to is the manipulation of organized religion for um, other ulterior motives and purposes, which seems to happen all the time. And uh, that's a little bit of what's going on here with Ross, of course. And, uh, but I do have, I, I'm not religious really, but I do have, I guess, certain spiritual stirrings, I suppose. Um, and 
to that end, I feel like Travis has redeemed himself. He has atoned for something that he did that he believes is very wrong. And, um, but it's not easy, right? He's got to, he's got to give his life for it. And, and that's why, that's how I arrived at this ending, to be honest, was, and it, it, of course, invariably, it always comes down to character. The characters will tell you how the, the story ends. And, um, and that's why Becky gets to go home. But it was, it was scary to me because the film doesn't end like a typical horror movie. They, in fact, we've already had the typical horror movie ending with, you know, the monster being killed. But now we have this, it's almost like an epilogue, like this, or this last chapter. And it's pretty soft. Like it doesn't, nothing actually scary happens. Nothing jumps out at you. There's nothing it's, cathartic. It's basically a happy sense. ending. It's a happy ending. It's, and it, it is a kind of happy ending. And um, so that was a little, it sounds weird because people are, you know, risk adverse people usually want happy endings. But I, a happy ending scared me in a way because I, I felt, well, for a horror film, it might be a little too gentle. But at the same time, I felt very strongly that emotionally this was the right ending. And I also have to say that with these people struggling to get out of this field for 90 minutes to just leave them in there (laughs) would be in itself very emotionally frustrating. And, and, and that's why I, I I wrote that ending. I did try to write that ending, but it, it felt, it felt very linear in a bad way. It felt like, well, you know, we just went from point A to point B exactly as we expected. And there's right. nothing surprising about it. They go from the but car to the field and they stay in the field and that's it. Like that would be, and the, that's whole, it. That would be the whole thing. Yeah. That's right. And that's not much to hang a feature film on. And then, and then more importantly, it just seemed like that was emotionally dishonest to our story that with Travis in the picture now, somebody who is on a quest, yeah, um, that he needed to, succeed in his quest and uh and that's how i came to this ending but it was that was the hardest part of writing the film certainly yeah and uh obviously um like becky kind of has her own arc here as well right where she realizes like you know she wants to keep the baby and be be a family and uh i guess cal's still gonna just gonna continue being frustrated unfortunately That's his face. <laughs> Poor Cal. Well, you know, we see, you know, maybe he'll move out. He'll move out <laughs> of their house. No, seriously, then maybe, see, things are going to work out. She's going to go home. She's going to be with Travis. And so there's not going to be any room for Cal. And then Cal's going to have to get a life. Mm. And then he'll be a happy guy. You're right. He'll get over this sister. It uh, all worked out for everyone, with the possible yeah, yeah. exception of Travis. Yeah, this guy here. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. So then, you know, lovely shot of, of him like l- looking up at the sky and then, you know, being kind of engulfed by the grass here. Uh, and you know, as we're as we're wrapping up, Vincenzo, I mean, first of all, this this time has just flown by. It's been so much fun to talk to you about this movie. Um, but uh, I guess I, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about like the process of making a movie for Netflix in general, you know. I I remember you and you and I go a little bit back. You know, I was at the world premiere of Splice at the I uh, well. you know the Chinese theater in Hollywood, and uh, I remember like it was it was really awesome to be there. You know, t- for that world premiere, and now like world premieres happen a lot differently, right? I mean, this dropped on Netflix, 
and you know the, the, your uh, a lot of your work is for TV these days. And so I guess I'm curious, like, uh, what has the experience like been you? What has the transition been like for you moving from uh, primarily making films to uh, a, a lot of your work is in this pretty bold and ambitious television, or in this case, I guess it would be a TV movie, although that sounds like worse uh, in terms of connotation than I think this actually is. Um, what, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, there's a lot to unpack there, David, but um, let me tell you, because uh, I think about this stuff all the time, of course. Uh, let's talk about Netflix for a moment, because I, I've i drunk the Kool-Aid a little bit, but I uh, I really like them. And, and there's a number of reasons. As a filmmaker, they are very deferential to me. This is a, an unusual movie. And um, particularly in the horror space, which is surprisingly conservative when it comes to you know, getting a film financed and getting it made. Horror movies are supposed to function in a certain way and do certain things. And I can tell you from my own bitter experience that when you try to do something different, it's really hard to get people to back you. And this movie would never have been made without Netflix, I don't think. Certainly not at the budget that we were at. Um, because the other issue with horror films is that unless you're making a studio horror film, and they don't make a lot of those, your budget is limited to $5 million. That's, and that's a fact. Like You cannot raise more than $5 million on the international market to make a horror film, um, thanks to Jason Blum, God bless him. But that's because he's created this model and no one else wants to do it differently. And I could never make this movie for $5 million. I could never get that. I tried, but I could never get the budget that low. Um, not that it was a great deal more, but it was it was more. And so... Netflix was the only place that I could make the movie the way I knew I needed to make it. And then I got to make my movie. They did not interfere. They were, they had some suggestions, they had notes, but they were intelligent notes and they were always delivered to me um, in a deferential way. Like here's something we suggest rather than here's something you have to do. So for somebody like me who is not like, you know, box office dynamite, um, that's an incredible thing. And, and then while it pains me not to have the film experienced by a lot of people in a movie theater, cause I did shoot it in a way to be experienced that way. Um, there's two things. <laughs> One to get a film in a movie theater, as you well know, is a very, 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 to do it properly. I mean, is extremely expensive. Yeah. You know, the, the entry point is really $30 million in advertising, and that's kind of at the low end. And so a movie like this, I don't believe, would have got through that process unscathed. In other words, for someone to invest $30 million on top of what it costs to actually make the movie means the film would have been test screened many times, means that I, an odd movie like this that's very, I know is divisive based on the way people are responding to it, would probably have been recut to round off the edges mm. so wouldn't have so, the, all, the the baby eating would have been the first thing to get cut <laughs> i probably i yes i'm sure of it and just the you know the unconventional structure to it and you know the fact the movie doesn't care to explain itself too much um so uh i believe that what i would have gained in a theatrical release would have i would have lost 
creatively in what the movie would ultimately have to be in order to um, satisfy that marketplace. Uh, however, on Netflix, I got to make my own movie. Um, and in an instant, and it blows my mind, but they literally press a button. And it, this is not a, a, a joke or a metaphor or anything. They, they literally press a button and the movie goes out to 190 countries across the world. And, and I know for a fact, I'm not allowed to say how many people have seen the movie. Um, they like to keep that information confidential most of the time. Um, but I can tell you <laughs> more people have seen this film in the last 10 days than everything I've done multiplied times a hundred. Or yeah. if, if I did put the film in 3000 screens and we packed every one of those screenings in the, over a 10 day period, we would not have reached that number. Right. And, and you so, can, you can yeah. kind of, this is obvious just by, like, if you search on Twitter for the words in the tall grass, right? Like, people are tweeting about this movie on, like, almost an hourly basis, right? Like, every couple hours is a tweet of someone reviewing this movie on Twitter. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. it's a very special thing. And I there is a reason why Martin Scorsese and Steve Soderbergh and the Coen brothers have made their last few films with Netflix, and it's in, and I, you know, I'm trying not to lament the, the death of movies as I knew them, theatrical movies as I knew them. I mean, there's still a theatrical movie industry and there's still great stuff out there, but it is different. It's not what I grew up with and it's not what I strove to do in the first 20 years of my career as a filmmaker. Um, so I'm trying to look positively at the future and, and the positive side is that especially for someone like me who kind of existed in the mid budget range, not the low, low, low budget range that one has to exist in, in order to make independent films now. Um, but not in the very high budget range either. Uh, there's now a place for me. And there was a period of time over the last five years where there really wasn't a place. I just couldn't make the movies. I tried, I had a couple admittedly ambitious films that I was trying to make and, I, it was, and I think the scripts are good and people like the scripts and, but it was just, they were too expensive and, um, and they were too weird to be made or I don't want to say weird, but they were, you know, too far outside the box of what movie studios wanted to do. So, so this is this and Amazon and I'm sure, you know, other streaming, um, platforms are giving the world movies that Hollywood stopped making. And that I, I can only see that as a good thing. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Uh, Vincenzo Natale is the director of films such as Cube and Splice, and he's also directed episodes of TV shows such as American Gods, Westworld, and Hannibal. And you've just been watching his newest movie, In the Tall Grass, on Netflix, uh, which he just gave a commentary for on the podcast Culturally Relevant. Vincenzo, it's been so fun. Thanks so much for joining me today. David, you made me feel relevant. <laughs> Well, mission accomplished. Yes, thank you. Such a pleasure. It's always a joy.